pushed in the Kansas legislature to require state courts and law enforcement agencies to temporarily take custody of firearms from people convicted of domestic battery or subject to a protection from abuse order. A bill in the Senate would close a loophole in a 2018 law banning convicted domestic abusers from buying firearms in Kansas, which mirrors federal standards. But that law didn't contain provisions for relinquishment of guns from people found to have engaged in domestic violence. The case for change in 2022 is being made by state legislators, Moms Demand Action, and the Kansas Coalition Against Sexual and Domestic Violence. In terms of the Senate bill requiring county sheriffs to take the lead in, in dealing with these firearms, um, it ran into opposition from a trio of Kansas law enforcement associations and gun rights lawmakers. Sitting in with us today is Representative Joella Hoy, a Lenexa Democrat who endorsed the pending Senate bill and has argued for comparable reforms in the past. Representative Hoy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Yeah, thanks for taking time. All right, so let's just start with this Senate bill. You testified before the committee in support of it. Do you want to just touch on the basic boundaries of Senate Bill 192? Yes. I would uh, reiterate your the background you provided that in 2018, uh, the legislature overwhelmingly passed a domestic violence bill that was signed into law by then Governor Collier, and uh, that mirrored federal law in order to make those convicted of domestic violence misdemeanors prohibited from purchasing and possessing firearms. And what Senate Bill 192 does is uh, enforces that law. It provides a mechanism uh, that streamlines the process for an individual upon conviction of domestic battery, domestic violence misdemeanors, and uh, stalking orders. They would get a written relinquishment order from the judge and then they would have 24 hours to relinquish that firearm to law enforcement or a federally licensed gun dealer. And then they have 48 hours to provide a proof of relinquishment. So in the event that someone is convicted of, of, domestic, of these domestic violence offenses, they are immediately prohibited from purchasing or possessing that firearm based on federal and state law. Mm-hmm. So if they're transporting a firearm and trying to comply with the law, um, they don't have any, they're, you know, they're breaking the law. So this it really truly is a uh, clear and explained process for the individual in order to comply with that law so that they're not possessing a firearm. Specifically, that last point was if I'm driving to the sheriff's department to surrender my three guns, uh, if I get pulled over, I could be in trouble. So this creates a mechanism and, a, and protection for individuals trying to follow the law, but also gets away from this hodgepodge of whatever the counties are doing to in, enforce this, this state standard, right? Yes. Okay, now why would you support such a piece of legislation? Uh, it, it's very evident that domestic violence continues to um, be a problem for, for Kansas families, especially women in Kansas and as well as children. And we know that the presence of a gun makes domestic violence situations, uh, become deadly. And so once these individuals, um, have been convicted, they should have to relinquish the firearms that they may already have, um, for the time period that they are prohibited from having them. So they'll be, you know, they can't go uh, to a federally licensed gun dealer and buy a gun. They're not going to pass a background check. But mm-hmm. this bill takes into account the fact that um, these individuals may have already been in possession of guns. Right. So in fact, 70%, these are statistics from 
Various sources, 70% of all women killed by an intimate partner in Kansas were killed with a gun. And by last count, there have been 17 homicides in Kansas related to domestic violence in 2022. And 10 of those deaths involved firearms. Um, do you think this will save lives if it's passed and signed the, into law? This bill has immediate opportunity to save lives um, by just removing the gun from the equation. And I would also add, um, you know, this it does prov provide the mechanism for voluntary uh, compliance with the law. Uh, but in the event, and I know there was some discussion about this, in the hearing, in the event that the individual does not comply, there is um, availability for the court to find uh, probable cause, to see a probable cause exists, and a search warrant uh, could be issued. And so uh, nothing, all, everything about this bill and this process, their due process has already occurred, and nobody is going to be going up into um, homes without um, probable cause and a search warrant. This is specifically relating to people who are not law-abiding gun owners. Right. So even to be covered by this, you would have to. The courts would have had to have said you're either a domestic violence uh, guilty of a crime, or have a protection from abuse order from somebody that fears uh, that individual. And in addition, if you don't voluntarily turn in your firearms, a court will issue the documentation to direct the county sheriff's department to go attempt to see, take into custody those guns, right? Yes. And that's basically the process. So the courts are definitely involved. Um, you know, as you might imagine, there's some opposition to this legislation. The Johnson and Sedgwick County Sheriff's Departments raised red flags, as did three law enforcement or, uh, officer organizations that lobby in the state house. So one thing they said was it could conflict with a, an important U.S. Supreme Court case regarding firearms and, and seizures. Senator Richard Hildebrand, a Baxter Springs Republican, said he was concerned that it could place law enforcement officers in greater danger because they would be responsible for dealing with violent people extremely uninterested in giving up their weapons. What would you say to that? I think that when you look at, at the history of gun violence in America, that um, individuals with, with um, histories of violence and dangerous records um, do pose a public safety risk. And the fact is these are um, illegal guns. These are guns that should not be in the, that possession. And um, again, this is there is a process in place if, if there is probable cause as for any illegal item um, that is out there, we do rely on our law enforcement to protect our communities from those uh, in those circumstances. And I appreciate how they bravely do that day in and day out. Uh, but the fact is these there are real people, real Kansans, who have lost loved ones to domestic violence, and those are the people who we're trying to protect. Other objections raised were, who's going to store and pay for the storage of all these firearms? Because you could, you know, one guy could have 100 guns. And there are questions, another element was the, the sheriff could seize concealed carry licenses. And, and so maybe that's okay if it's a Kansas license, but a question was raised about a license uh, issued by another state. And finally, another objection was that a firearm could be seized that has never been involved in a crime. So 
it's not like the individual who uh, has the gun in his house had committed a crime with it. So that's just kind of a shady area. Like, you know, grandpa's shotgun is, you know. Mm-hmm. As somebody who is in possession of my grandpa's shotgun, I would say, you know, I'm a law-abiding gun owner. I have not uh, done violent acts against others. So if you don't want to lose your firearms, don't be a violent person. Um, These, again, are people who are prohibited from having them. So if you are convicted of domestic uh, battery, domestic violence, misdemeanors, or stalking order, you can't possess any guns. And um, you know, I, I want to. I definitely understand that people are collectors and and have family heirlooms. But um, you can go and have a federally licensed gun dealer uh, sell it for you, store it for you. There are processes where you can retrieve uh, your gun once you are no longer prohibited from being in possession of it. And I, I just, I really find that to be a pretty weak argument against trying to um, protect. Uh, children and families from um, potential violence. Okay, so there were several people said at the hearing there was potential for compromise. Do you think that's possible? Working with these law enforcement agencies to recraft the bill and kind of come to an agreement? Yes, I I would welcome um, suggestions for amendments to the bill. Uh, Again, we we did hear a, a HB 2251 last year, which is the companion bill in the House, and this is um, uh, SB 192. It's not unusual to have these companion bills, and mm-hmm. I would welcome any suggestions. I have yet to receive those, and I feel that we need to stop, um, you know, nitpicking around and figure out a way to create this clear process so that we can keep guns out of the hands of domestic abusers. Think if it somehow could get through the House and the Senate, Governor Laura Kelly has indicated that she would sign a bill of this nature. She, in the Senate, she was a supporter of the Second Amendment and the right to bear arms, but here's what she had to say about this legislative idea. Domestic abusers are not law-abiding citizens and should not have the right to possess firearms. Support for the Second Amendment can include support for common-sense gun laws. You agree? I agree. So you were inspired in part to run for the Kansas House a handful of years ago, based on your work with Moms Demand Action, why don't, why don't you just tell us a little bit about the organization and, and what their point of emphasis is? I got involved with Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense in America uh, because I'd, I'd had enough. I, I've seen how gun violence has impacted our communities across the country, and I felt that my background in uh, professional local government management would be beneficial to the growing gun violence prevention movement, and so that's how I ended up getting involved in leadership and helping grow that movement here in Kansas, and uh, we did we did help um passed that domestic violence bill in 2018 and back in 2017 when um, you'll remember the um, changes to the personal and family protection act were about to expire for um, college campuses hospitals mental health centers nursing homes and uh, we were uh, able to work and advocate for um, legislation that would permanently exempt public hospitals, mental health centers, nursing homes, and indigent care facilities um, from being forced to have to allow guns in their premises. Yeah, concealed firearms. All right. Um, many people, I've heard some of the testimony involved in 
Moms to Man Action have very poignant personal experiences with gun violence. You know some of those stories. Yes, I continue to be inspired by the survivors of gun violence who dedicate their uh, service and advocacy to stopping this from happening to anyone else. That um, motivates me, and that's why I ended up deciding to run for office to send a, a mom to Topeka. We need more of us here, but it's very important to elevate their voices. And that is why I, I will say I'm very appreciative of the chairs in the House and the Senate who gave this bill, the, uh, both of these bills hearings, and allowed the opportunity for Kansans um, who've experienced these tragedies to make their voices heard. Mm -hmm. It must be, I, I've interviewed some of these individuals and it, it's mothers, you know, like you say, but siblings and fathers and and it just must be so hard to stand up in public and talk about a daughter who was just senselessly gunned down because the boyfriend was mad. Just appalling. Yeah, they're heartbreaking stories. And again, these are very brave um, moms and family members who um, really put themselves out there in an advocacy role. And um, I, I think that what they're doing is saving lives. Let's talk about a bit of related research. A uh, peer-reviewed journal put out a, an article that indicated that tried to make a link between stand-your-ground laws, which Kansas and Missouri have. Uh, these allow you people who feel threatened to use deadly force in a self-defense mode with no obligation to retreat. So somebody comes to your house, yeah, presumptively you could just shoot them in your house, and um, that's that. But the article suggested that in states that had adopted these laws, there was a meaningful increase in fire, firearm homicide rates. I think the rate in Kansas had gone up uh, from around 2000 to 2017 by 27%. So what do you think about, is, 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 do you think there's a connection between stand your ground, just kind of giving a people a free pass to pull the trigger or is it something else going on? Well, I've seen evidence and um, that states with the weakest gun laws have the highest rates of, of violent crime. And uh, Kansas, the shoot first law, also known as stand your ground, was um, implemented back in 2010. And so now we, we've had over a decade to see the impact of this law. And circling back, Prior to the implementation of um, these shoot first laws, all states have self-defense laws. We already had no duty to retreat in our own homes. We should mm. never have a duty to retreat in our own homes. But what that law did was um, extend that um, out and about to the workplace, uh, vehicles, and protection of property, um, even in the event when the individual could clearly and safely and reasonably walk away. And this has really empowered and emboldened people. Um, and it, it isn't, it hasn't even been, it's changed the nature of gun violence across the country uh, in these 29 states that have these laws, but it's not just guns. In Kansas, we've seen um, fist, fist fights, knives, swords, uh, people who, ha who feel empowered to use, seek out violence, use violence, and then claim self-defense under this law. Mm -hmm. And really the impact uh, 
of this law is that we um, have seen people get away with murder. There are cases where legal is murder in the state, or murder is legal in the state of Kansas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you can demonstrate in some manner that it was self-defense, I presume. Does this include bar fights? Yes, and it, it, it's the, the sticky part about the, what this law did was grant immunity from criminal and civil prosecution. Hmm. So that's why we have district attorneys in the state saying, you know, our hands are tied. We can't even draw up charges in this because of the shoot first, stay in your ground law. So even if you if you have objections to this research conclusion tying tying together stand your ground uh, laws and homicides, it doesn't look like homicides are going down in the United States. Uh, and I don't know if that was an, a point of stand your ground to deter, to be a deterrent uh, for bad guys saying, well, I better be careful because this guy could just whip out a gun and shoot me. Um, I'm not sure if it was supposed to be a deterrent or just a legal protection for people who, who want to, as you say, shoot first. I, I think it's been interpreted more by, by the courts more broadly than the intent. I certainly hope that wasn't the intent, and that's why we need to revisit this law and really um, do our due diligence to hear from district attorneys and families that have been impacted uh, by this law because um, it, 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 it's really a license to kill in, circum, in circumstances um, where somebody has, um, you know, you can punch somebody in the face and then you're the one, then they retaliate and you could be then the one who needs to use the self-defense. And it just really um, does not encourage people to walk away. It encourages them to use uh, lethal force. If it had an unintended consequence of making self-defense definitions murky, then that's not good. Let's finally, uh, before our time runs out here, uh, you could just wave your magic wand and tell me about other gun reforms you'd like to see. There are other pieces of legislation out there worth talking about. Yes. Well, I again, I've been looking at the um, how violent crime has has increased in our state, and. Uh, of course, the, the shoot first, also known as stand your ground law, has um, not made our state safer. And another um, law that um, I think has had a negative impact on public safety is, is permitless carry. Um, back in 2015, that, that was, uh, became law where you didn't have to have a permit or training to carry a hidden loaded gun. And that was also um, going back, looking at the testimony. Um, individuals said, "Hey, this is this is going to make our uh, safer. We're going to have you know more law-abiding people uh, out there with guns." But the fact is that um, violent cr- crime continu- continues to increase. Uh, back in 2020, if you look at the Kansas Crime Index from 2020, uh, that murders rose. Uh, 48.5% since 2019, and this is the highest total um, since the FBI began publishing crime in the U.S. in 1959. So um, the gun laws that we have, um, we've weakened our gun laws over the last decade and have not seen any reduction in crime. We have actually seen an increase. And so we really do need to take a look at this and and compare to other states because um, 
as I said earlier, the states with the weakest gun laws have the highest rates of violent crime. Yeah, some of those stats are, are incredible. I want to thank Representative Joella Hoy, a Lenox Democrat and volunteer with Moms Demand Action uh, on gun violence. Thank you for joining us today on the Kansas Reflector Podcast. Thank you so much for having me.